HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now. If you're a digital farmer, how do you get your harvest information? If you're curious, this episode of Tech Bites is for you. Heritage Radio Network listeners listening in from 65 countries around the world, a million strong a month. I'm Jennifer Liuzzi. This is Tech Bites, the weekly show where we talk to influencers and innovators in the food tech space. This is episode 106, broadcasting live on July 20th, 2017, in case you're listening in the future. It is a scorching 87 degrees already out here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And it's only 11 a.m. in the morning, so we're definitely moving into the hot summer days. That is our engineer and Heritage Radio Network studio manager, David Tattashore, the man in mission control. How are you this morning, David? Hello, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I had an okay commute in on the L train. Okay commuter? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's such a crapshoot right now That's my in favorite Manhattan. Album. <laughs> David, is, wait. So, uh, real quick, can I ask you? You've been living in New York for a long time. Is this the worst it's been in a while? Yes. Okay. Just I thought so. It's the worst it's been in a while, and I will say tangentially that 
I have been in New York for a long time. I went to NYU, so that's I started off young. There is a distinct and palatable feeling in the city, on the streets, in the energy of the people, kind of like in the clubs, in the subway, that really reminds me in a very strong way to New York City of the early 90s, sort of coming, in, coming out of that like bright lights, big city kind of phase. You know, it's, it's hot. Things are kind of getting dirtier. There's, you know, a little bit more open kind of recreational pharma stuff happening on the streets, which was a big part of, you know, the 90s. There's Wall Street and money and sort of a, a seemingly um, stronger divide between, uh, you know, the 1% and everybody else. And it's very interesting. Even fashion, even 90s fashion is like a big storyline now with the high waist and the logo, you know, t-shirts and t-shirts with statements and, you, you need know, only hats. look through the window here in our studio to see that. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. I mean, if you go back and you look at movies from the nineties and look at the ad campaigns and the fashion magazines and stuff like that, it's, it's kind of happening again. So, you know, and that was a period of time where, yeah, the subway was kind of like janky and slow and broke and hot and terrible. And I feel like it's, it's all back, but we digress. Sorry. <laughs> Joining us today, one of the food tech innovators is Allison Koff, and she is the founder and CEO of Agrilist, which is a virtual agronomist software platform that helps indoor farmers analyze their grow data and make the best out of their harvest and productivity. Allison, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So we're going to start this episode like we always do, kind of going around the shipping container, talking about apps, our favorite apps. New ones we may have just discovered, old favorites that have been living on our home screens for the last 10 years. Allison, do you have an app that you're really using a lot now? And the only thing is that you can't talk about an app that you own, have developed, or invest in. <laughs> okay, so Agrilis is off the table. Um, no, I've actually been, I don't know why, but recently been using a lot of two apps. Uh, one, I'm obsessed with Venmo. I know it's not new. I know it's not that exciting anymore, I don't think. But um, but I just realized the other day how easy it made staying on top of your friends, um, which <laughs> talking about the 90s didn't exist. And and, um, and it sort of opens a lot more doors. So I'm, I'm currently obsessed with just making sure that we're all equal on payments side of things. Um, the second is Space Team, which is an awesome game. Uh, and when you have a company and you have team retreats, uh, you're always looking for awesome ways to to bond a little bit more and and so our team has gotten very very good at space team okay so work and play kind of the interesting thing about venmo is i don't really use it that often i have one friend that i use venmo with for the (laughs) most part and because it tracks all of the payments back and forth we're basically passing back and forth like the same you know, hundred, hundred and fifty dollars on Monday, pizza, on you know, Tuesday. ticket to this thing, <laughs> ticket to that thing, dinner, Thai food, you know, and the f- I, I watch the feed of it and it almost to me is like the start of a, I'm thinking that it should be the start of, of an essay or a novel or like a screenplay or something like that, where our relationship is tracked through. Venmo. Yeah, and emojis. Like yeah, your, your exactly. relationship is entirely based on emojis now. And Venmo, and that's how we track like how we're doing and what it is and, <laughs> and that kind of thing. But yeah, so Venmo can be a lot of fun. I've, I don't know Space Team. I don't play a lot of games. Well, I can recommend it for team settings if you need to... If you need to fight it out here in the shipping container, Space Team is a way to go. I would actually probably just want to fight it out. 
<laughs> no apps needed. No apps needed. David, do you have an app that you like really a lot right now? Um, I wouldn't say a lot. My app this week is very unsexy, but uh, <laughs> it is called Solid Explorer, which is like a file managing app for Android. Um, I'd been using this one called ES File Explorer for a long time, which was like a really solid and well-known one, but they started incorporating more ads into it. So I jumped ship and now I'm on to Solid Explorer you do the next podcast, The Sexiness of File Exploration. Yeah. You tend to gravitate towards um, organization, audio, and security. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Yeah. So my app this week is a timely one. I'm going to call out, also not new, but potentially extremely important right now, the HBO Go app. If you're watching Game of Thrones which started its new season on Sunday. The HBO Go app might be great, especially if you're a, a metro rider and you know, you're spending time on the subway. If you get trapped and you, you're in a spot where you have Wi-Fi, it could be helpful. Interestingly, there was a great article in the New York Times maybe a week or so ago about people sharing the, their HBO passwords with friends and family. And that every time sort of a new season starts up, they would bubble up and, you know, start to see like the numbers of people who are watching series using, you know, their brother's password from like two years ago. And the interesting thing was that most of the streaming and subscription video content services like HBO and others didn't want to comment for the article because even though technically you're not supposed to, and there's some different law cases that were turning through the system about this type of thing where technically it's kind of illegal and the New York times was not recommending sharing or using someone else's password. The providers like HBO wouldn't comment are now kind of a little okay with it because that means broader distribution and broader numbers and broader reach and that kind of thing in some instances. So it's a kind of an interesting looking the other way. Hasn't the Netflix CEO always had that position too? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you still have all the laws. So, I mean, it's, it's law versus practice versus point of view versus numbers. So. I'm sure there's quite a few listeners out there who are currently utilizing somebody else's HBO password to watch Game of Thrones. So that's my app for this week. So going back to Allison and Agrillist, it's, uh, this came across, I got introduced to Allison when I was booking the Women CEOs episode uh, a few episodes back. And she didn't have, an, she wasn't, uh, we didn't have opportunity to have her on the show then. Um, but that's how I was first introduced to her company, which I find fascinating. We've not done a lot on farm technology on this show, so this is a good opportunity to kind of delve into that. I always thought that, you know, nature being so uncontrollable and so random that, of course, tracking as much as you can the information that's happening when you're growing things out in the wild would be very important. I assumed, incorrectly that when you're growing things inside in indoor farming that you have total control over everything. So that seemed to, to mitigate the amount of information you would need because you can be in control of so much and you can you know, program that. So why would you need data on what you're programming? But apparently that's not the case. <laughs> so we're glad that Allison is here to talk to us about a very kind of specific niche thing. I mean, indoor farming is, is new. It's booming. It's a booming tech segment. 
to help food production fix the planet and so many different, you know, storylines there. Is this some of the, and then we have new technology springing up to support new industry. Yeah. Um, I think there's often a misconception on what indoor farming is first and foremost. And this is where a lot of this idea of full and total control comes from. Um, especially right now with a lot of attention on um, big, massive indoor farming operations that are getting a lot of attention from Silicon Valley. So you have Plenty as a good example because they just announced today uh, a $200 million venture round. You have Bright Farms in New York. You have Edenworks in New York. You have Aero Farms in New York. You've got Gotham Greens here. Um, so you've got this sort of mecca for... Um, really large commercial indoor farming operations that are that are coming into attention right now uh, and over the last really five years. Um, but really, when we think about indoor farming and who we're serving as a company, we're thinking about any farmer who's building in a way that they have the opportunity to control the elements. Um, so that's not just your fully enclosed vertical farm in a warehouse, it could be a greenhouse, it could be a shipping container, uh, as, as we're currently in, um, it could be it could be a fully enclosed warehouse operation, um, and it could be some hybrid of all of these things. We do have gardens on the roof of the shipping containers, Roberta, Roberta's Pizza, where the shipping containers are located in Bushwick, Brooklyn, has a greenhouse on the top of the containers where they're growing herbs and um, other little vegetables for the restaurant. Yeah. And, and they can be as small as a shipping container, right? It doesn't have to be this massive commercial operation necessarily. From us, our customers range in size from as small as a shipping container, a few hundred uh, square meters or a few thousand square feet, up through these multi-acre massive greenhouses. And so that industry has been around for a really, really long time. Um, but now you're getting this introduction of technology in a way that farms are starting to catch up with the rest of the tech world, and they're becoming higher tech um, tech focused. So let's let's just unpack that a little bit so we can understand which types of farms we're talking about going forward. The greenhouse is not something that I would have technically considered indoor farming for this whole tech sphere because, to your point, greenhouses have been around as long as we've had houses, basically. Sure. So in your definition, what does indoor farming mean? Anyone who has the ability to control the elements, right? So a greenhouse is a really good example. Um, a greenhouse, why, why not consider it indoor farms? It is a structure. Um, even if it's a plastic hoop house, it's still a structure on top of your farm that allows you to um, adjust the climate, so having an element of climate control, whether that's to control temperature, humidity, um, CO2, or lighting, you have the ability to actually mitigate the risks of weather. So the way that we think about indoor farming, and this is also um, a debate in the industry. You have um, Dixon Despommier, who's uh, sort of coined the vertical farming terminology um, as, as this fully enclosed idea where you're stacking vertically um, but you have this 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 pull in the industry of what is an indoor farm. I would simplify it. I would say anything where you have the ability to protect yourself against weather um, would be considered indoor in my in my opinion. You know why not why not the same as a house? You have a structure. It's it's growing indoors. So then, definitely all of these new indoor farms, the ones you've just mentioned. When we think about you know the new era of indoor farming, we think about you know growing hydroponic lettuce in a warehouse. We think about, you know, the vertical walls of growing different seeds and plants. 
So fundamentally, do you, do, you, do you define a difference between what we all understand as a basic greenhouse and then these new tech-driven indoor farms? Yeah. Or is it just semantics and details? I think that- a lot of it is semantics because I think uh, even hydroponics, for example, is not a new technology. It's been around for centuries. Um, the idea of growing with recirculating water um, is not new to any farmer anywhere. Um, but what's new and where the tech can come into play is um, how do you optimize operations? Uh, how do you automate operations? So where can you eliminate unnecessary labor? Um, and how do you really reach beyond just profitability as something you're focused on and start thinking about things like sustainability or uh, food safety or the consumer end of things and targeting growth towards health and wellness. Um, And those things become really interesting once you start to think about new technologies. So we have indoor farming. Now talk to us about what kind of data you would need. And again, go back to my incorrect (laughs) but original hypothesis, which was if you're controlling everything, why do you need data on what you're controlling? Because you know what it is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it would be great if the world (laughs) worked in a perfect perfect vacuum, I think. I think every farmer would be excited if if you could have ultimate control. But I always give the example of your apartment, right? Yes. So we're in New York. It's hot right now. Yes. Um, 87 degrees outside. 87 degrees. We're all sweating. Um, And you think about your apartment. My apartment is probably sitting at around 80, 82 degrees right now. Um, By the time I get home, I'm going to have to pump the air conditioning to get that down to my desired 70 degrees. Um, And and you think about that and and now think about a farm, right? And a farm has a desired temperature as well. Generally for for lettuces, it's actually around the same. It's around 70 degrees. Um, And if you're in a greenhouse, which is a glass house, in the East Coast right now, that greenhouse is going to take a lot of energy to cool it down to that 70 degrees to keep it at that optimal temperature. Um, if you're in a warehouse, you're still going to get those effects because airflow happens. Um, no walls are perfect. Um, and if they are, you're investing a lot of money into that capital so, or capital into that building. So, um, so the way that I think about it is no matter what, there are imperfections in design, um, whether intentional or unintentional. And so, you know, climate control is never perfect without an element of data collection. Um, but, but broadly speaking, I actually go back um, to one of the fundamental things that we work on, which is how do we look at the processes on the operational side of things and start to automate uh, some of those to a point where they, uh, you can shift your labor hours. So a head grower, um, one of the things that they do every day is plan production. What am I growing? How am I growing it? Should I be growing and harvesting every day? Should I be planting once a week? Should I? What is the cycle and what is my sales demand? And that has to be constantly reevaluated. Are those considerations the same or different from indoor to outdoor farming? Similar, except for the, the time cycle, right? So if you're growing a commodity crop, say you're growing corn, you're only planting once a season. Um, you're not planting quarterly or every day. Um, on lettuces, it's such a short growth cycle. You can grow indoors. You can grow it between 18 and really 35 days. So that's determined by the crop, not by the indoor-outdoor, right? No, both. Um, both? Yeah. So I mean, if I was a letter, lettuce farmer outside... So if you're growing lettuce in Salinas, it takes about 65 days to grow a head of lettuce in the summer and about 130 days in the winter. So you're going to get less crop turn, so it's less of a consideration. Whereas in indoor farming, because, again, you're controlling the environment to quote-unquote perfection, you can grow much faster, you can grow much more more, you can grow much more frequently. 
And so what you want to look at in an indoor farm is what's the most optimal growth pattern for the climactic conditions and your your operating expenses, but also from a sales perspective. So if I have Roberta's uh, knocking on my door for basil every single day because of how much they sell, that's great. It just means I have to plant more frequently than if I didn't have somebody next door to me who needed everything every day. Um, And so what growers look at all the time is how do all those conditions play in? And my argument would be that is a a relatively um, complex but also easily automated function. If you understand the data across all of your systems, if you understand your climate data and the cost of running those climate systems, if you understand the sales demand and where that's going, and you understand how plants perform, then creating um, creating your schedules and creating the tasks associated with it can all be automated to a way that it's really becomes a tool for a grower as opposed to a, a sort of daily burden. So, I mean, it sounds to me like it's a very uh, straightforward sort of operation, production, point of sale, uh, software it's platform. workflow management. Yeah. yeah, which sounds very similar to what you would do if you were a food manufacturer or if you were a restaurant or, you know, a bakery or something like that. Um, it sounds very straightforward and sounds, um, as you describe it, like, you know, platforms that we've seen in other industries is this new for indoor farming or is this new for farming? I mean, we've had these kinds of platforms in development, you know, for other industry, it sounds like, for quite some time. Was there just a lag because of the nature of the agricultural business or? Yeah. Um, so there's, is it there's just everything, is, everything now is tech enabled and everything <laughs> now is getting its own startup stream. And yeah, there's a few things there. You think about conventional farming. Um, I'll say first, first it, ties to the mindset of a farmer. Um, and, and people often mistake farmer mindset for misery or cheap, um, which is not the case, really. Farmers are just pragmatic. If your margins are under 10%. Like restaurants? They, exactly. If your margins are under 10%, you're not going to just spend frivolous money on tech systems if you don't see an ROI day one. Return on investment. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so similar to restaurants, similar to other low margin industries, it's just really difficult to sell tech to farms. Um, And so what you're seeing now is a lot of interest from the investment community into technology, which actually enables technologists to build things that and explore things that are catching up to the rest of the tech world, um, but have to do that on a really affordable and really um, return-driven sort of platform. Um, so that that's why there was a little bit of a lag, I think, one of the reasons why there's been a little bit of a lag in technology. It sounds very similar um, to the arc of tech platforms for the restaurant industry. Yeah. Because the margins are so low. It's very day-to-day. The touch points of inputs of information that you could create are vast and varied, but... Um, you know, making a case for the spend versus the return is definitely something that people talk about. Although my guess is that, you know, a restaurant or a food business or, you know, a producer sort of already has some technology happening in their business. You're probably already working on some sort of, you know, purchase software or system you're already using you know, the internet for maybe reservations or bookings or yeah. that kind of and thing. And every so. farmer has a cell phone in their pocket, right? Mm-hmm. So they are tech enabled. Right. Uh, it's a matter of switching from tech enabled to tech driven. 
Um, so, so running your business off of technology as opposed to just having it available to you uh, is a real key sort of switch and shift that needs to happen in the industry. But as, as you know, to address the question even more specifically, right? So tech in the conventional farming world has been on a boom recently. You've had a lot of investment. You've had a lot of software companies starting up for the commodities crops because that industry is so well-established and large in the United States. Is that driven by finance? Is that driven by uh, uh, really growing uh, focus on saving the planet, fixing the broken food systems? You know, we're seeing a lot of, you know, conferences and headlines and discussions around these things. Or is it just finally getting around to this piece of I think it's more simple than that, really. I mean, if you think about corn... um, if you think about a 40-year career, you're getting 40 chances to do better. That's it. It's it's really not that complicated. And so if you think about technologists, uh, this is a massive, massive market opportunity. And the real opportunity is to help farmers improve from year to year. And if you can do that, then a farmer is going to make money. They're going to buy technology. And it's going to spur this sort of economic boom that investors are hoping for. Um but on the indoor side, by the way, on a flip, um, so you've got a ton of software. I think recently somebody put out a report that it was over 60 companies in the software business wow. for outdoor farms. That sounds like a lot. Right. And it's and that's a lot. <laughs> that's, that's market saturation. Farmers are being sold things far too frequently. And so it's hard to make decisions and draw out noise. On the indoor farming side, um, you have this sort of uh, dich- dichotomy and, and split between um, who's actually doing this type of thing. Um, and I, what we find really often, so I came from the farming, the operating side, um, and what I found personally was just that I got really frustrated that we didn't have the tools that we needed. We didn't have 60 software platforms knocking at our door. What we had was uh, we had to make do with software that had been used in conventional manufacturing industries. So when we wanted to manage the inventory of our facility, we were trying to use things like Oracle or SAP that don't really work for the farming industry because a farmer is not uh, they're they're not going to use software that isn't geared towards the operation. It just doesn't speak the same language. And what um, and what I ended up doing was leaving to build really something simple. It was I wanted to build a piece of software that spoke the same language as farmers. Um, and so you were entering, you know, harvest data. You were entering. It wasn't called inventory. It was called harvest data. And you were thinking about crop selection. You weren't necessarily thinking about just itemization. And so. Um, and so that it was really simple for your your farmers who are new versus your and and your established farmers. Um, but the interesting dichotomy is you've got a lot of farmers who are still struggling with the simple things, and that's really a lot of what our software is geared towards fixing. But then you have a lot of these farmers who came from tech industries now, hmm. who are starting to get into the space. Um, who are building software. Yeah, who are building software. I mean, one of our good friends has an insect farm and they came from Silicon Valley. They were data scientists from Silicon Valley. There's a lot of of that in the world today. Yeah, and as long as you're pairing up with actual growers who know how to do it really well, Mm -hmm. you could have a really successful operation that introduces tech and farming. Um, I think the key there is you you do have to have farming experience. Yes, yes. well, you need a, a representative of each piece yeah, of the Yeah, and farming is part. hard. And, and I think people often are overlooking the fact that farming is, in fact, really hard and that tech can solve everything. But um, but so, so the interesting thing in indoor farming is that there was this gap, this void of technology that I was uh, on the software side, at least. So it's another instance where people start 
tech companies to solve problems that they're personally experiencing, which which yeah. is which is a is a storyline that we hear quite frequently. We're going to take a break and find out who the sponsor is of this show and who is a supporter of Heritage Radio Network. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. Did you know that? That's why we're heritageradionetwork.org. And we are right now in the middle of our annual summer membership drive, which runs until July 31st. Go to the website, click the beating heart, make a donation, become a member. We've got T-shirts, which are amazing. We've got other HRN swag. And if you select your donation to be dedicated to Tech Bytes, I will send you something very special along with my undying love. program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hi, I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past here on Heritage Radio Network. Using food as a lens to observe history and culture, I take you on a weekly journey through different topics of culinary history. Tune in on Thursdays at noon to hear about the history of such topics as American cake, the accidental churning of butter, pho, the Vietnamese soup craze, and so much more. And help us keep this and other heritage programming alive. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate and continue enjoying great programs. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today that t- intersection is... At the Indoor Farm, we're talking with Allison Koff, who is the founder and CEO of Agrilist, which is a digital platform to help indoor farmers basically maximize their production. It's a fascinating kind of thing because we don't really think about farming as being thing, something that you can control with technology. Um, I'm also happy to have her here because she is a woman founder and CEO in the tech world. Woo. <laughs> so a lot of interesting headlines right now for women in tech. A lot of them positive, some of them negative, you know, some stories bubbling to light about, you know, some of the uh, conflicts and, and challenges and just downright, you know, in some cases like illegal confrontations that women 
in the tech world are subject to without going into sort of, you know, total gory details and, and things like that. From your point of view, um, you've been pretty you've had a pretty successful run thus far with the Grillist in terms of winning, um, you know, winning awards for being a change maker. You're a mentor at different programs like Built by Girls and Square Roots Grow. So what, what's your take on the current state of affairs for women CEOs in tech? Yeah, I think that, I mean, if you look at fundraising alone, fundraising is hard for anyone. And, um, and so you're trying to convince an investor that your idea is the idea that is going to win. It's going to be a big idea in a big market, and it's going to make everyone a lot of money. And, um, and that's, that's not an easy thing to do um, for, for anyone. And I think you know a lot of the headlines that we're seeing, uh, especially on the negative side and, and all of the things that are happening, you know, m- my opinion on that is if, if people are behaving badly towards any other person, they should be asked to remove, and that's it. They should be removed by their, their LPs and their bosses, and, you know, and, and that's, that's, it just should be that way. Well, especially um, when bad behavior crosses the line into yeah. um, illegal or against company policy or, you know, that kind of thing. But if you look at the the real danger, I think, and this is where a lot of um, where I focus from a mentorship side and, and from just my personal experience fundraising is um, there's an even more uh, important danger that is how uh, do investors look at other, the, the category of other, right, whether it's minorities or LGBTQ or, or gender differences, um, do they look at that category of other differently um, or less inherently in their decision-making process. Um, and that, to me, is scarier because that means that you're off at a, a lower footing day one, um, which means that the process is going to be longer. It's going to be harder than it already is. Um, but there are ways to mitigate it. I think we've been really successful, um, or I've been really successful at fundraising so far, um, because of the fact that we, I focused on building a company that was right for the VC world, that was scalable, that was a good business, um, Articulate what you mean by right for the VC world. Yeah, um, not every business should seek venture capital funding. I firmly believe that. I think, in fact, probably most businesses are not right for um, venture capital funding specifically. If you think about what VCs are looking for in order to make their funds um, valuable to their to their investors themselves, you're you're seeking really outsized returns which means, and you hear this all the time in, in um, the headlines, is you're looking for billion-dollar opportunities where the company can scale very, very quickly to making you know hundreds of millions of dollars to billions of dollars in an exit opportunity. Um, and so that is great um, for certain companies. And it's really about the financial transaction exactly. and trajectory as the primary results that you're looking for and focused on versus other growth Although not results. necessarily, right? I think like we're a really good example of a company that, so we went after venture capital. Um, we believe that uh, at the core of it, that the indoor farming industry is a multi-billion dollar opportunity for, for data specifically in this industry. Um, and we believe that we can scale with our sales model currently to getting really good outsized returns for our investors and for the company. Um, that being said, we were not funded based or we were not founded based on the idea that we wanted to do that. We were founded based on the idea that we could solve a really massive challenge for farmers solving a really 
big problem in the industry, which is how do we grow more efficiently, more sustainably, um, better quality and safer food, um, which is a way bigger issue than Which than is an money. issue that then transcends to being a population and a people issue. <laughs> yeah. Because they're growing the stuff we eat. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it becomes a health issue and it becomes all of these things are really issue. rooted. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. A lot of the issues that we face from healthcare or from energy are all rooted in food. And so, um, and so you can have a crossover of things that are meaningful and important and impactful um, and things that make, make money. I don't think there has to be a difference um, in in that in that uh, in that mindset, um, but but you know so we we went after venture capital and we raised uh, over a million dollars for the company early on. Um, that road is not easy. Um, we pitched uh, close to a hundred investors in order to raise that capital. Uh, it took a few months to do that. Uh, it's not easy. It's not quick. Uh, anybody thinking it's an easy quick game is uh, is fooling themselves. But um, but you can do it and you can, and I think women are really good at a lot of things. Um, you know, if you think about farmers, if you take a step back and ignore VC for a second, we're in an industry where 30% of farmers, uh, farm operators are women. Uh, I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a challenge in that only about half of those are primary operators, but you have this large resurgence of women and, in, 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 some of the issues that we face in raising capital from a tech perspective actually carry over to these women running farms in that traditionally they've had a lack of access to capital and a lack of access to land and a lack of access to labor and resources that they need. So what they've done instead of competing with the massive industry industrial farms is that they've been operating on smaller parcels in more sustainable ways, leading the organic movement, leading the sustainable farming movement, leaving diversity of crops um, in a way that nobody else has been focused on. And it's created this really important component to our agricultural economy. And when we think about our customers on the indoor farming side, we're seeing a ton of women who run operations and own operations down to women who are employees of the farms. We have two customers who are fully female run operations. Wow. Yeah, fully run from the owner down to hourly employees, fully female run uh, operations. You have women like Jessica Vaughn out in California who leads one of the largest basil operations, indoor basil operations in the country. Um, So you're seeing a lot of women come into ownership and power roles in the indoor farming industry in a way that I don't even know that the conventional industry has seen before. And that to me is really exciting. That is exciting. So good things happening also. Yeah. And I think, uh, by the way, one of the other things that's really exciting is is women, by nature, because we've been sort of forced in this box, and I'm sp- speaking specifically in, in farming, um, of having to fight your way out of things, right? F- fighting for land, fighting for uh, labor, fighting for financial means to start a farm. Um, what they've done a really good job at is network building and coalition building and sharing data. Whereas when you think about these sort of VC-backed farms, by nature, they have to create a moat for themselves in terms of competition. And so there's no data sharing. So one of the most interesting questions we get as a software company who deals with data is, um, is how do you deal with data? Because on the one hand, you have we have large commercial operations who are not interested in sharing data. And most of the female-run operations are actually incredibly interested in sharing data because they understand the sort of benefits of network effect that you get when you can eliminate six months of time learning and just start right away. 
So there's the an greater interesting, the pool, the yeah, better the data yeah, yeah. will be. And so there's a really, really interesting thing happening in the industry around data and data share and what that could mean for the industry and what folks actually want to share versus not share um, becomes a really interesting question and, and sort of dilemma in the industry. Sounds like it's an exciting time to be a woman in the agricultural slash ag tech sphere. Women are very good at organizing. <laughs> Women are very good at organizing, getting stuff together, getting groups of people together, whether it's, you know, a meetup with friends, a party, getting your family, you know, together in the car to go someplace or organizing a big movement with, you know, millions of people around the world. Um, so that kind of doesn't surprise me. That, also good you know, at running businesses. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so at the end of each show, I always like to ask guests for a piece of actionable advice for listeners at home. I feel like you've just given a lot of great advice on, on um, being an entrepreneur and startups in the tech world. I'll go to something like very simple and very basic. What, what's your best advice for people who want to have you know, plants at home? who want to have a little maybe kitchen garden, window box, maybe a couple plants inside. We're in New York City. I have one plant. It cycles through doing well and not doing well. <laughs> I've never I been successful. I see all of the beautiful <laughs> plants at the green market that you can buy from flowers to herbs and spices. Do you, do you have any advice for how to keep a nice house plant? It's funny. I'm relatively terrible at keeping house plants in my apartment because I don't have access to direct sun. Um, one of the things I will say that is, you know, quick and actionable, I am currently very obsessed with home growing kits. Yes. Um, I think that this is a hot new thing that's, you know, coming to Kickstarters near you everywhere. Um, I think there's a lot of market saturation. I think there's a lot of them. There's also a lot of different types. There's, there's very totally simple different ones. Types. And then there are things that Complex are like really and aeroponics and systems and that are several hundred dollars with lights that turn on yeah. and software monitoring systems. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm, and then there's like a chia pet. My actionable, yeah, exactly. Or like a vase, just a plain yeah, or vase. Or the tomato hanging plant <laughs> thing. Yeah, so so I would say um, one of the most fun things about this industry is how much is going on. So I would say do a little research and, and find something that you think works for you in your space and, and try it. Um, and, and my direct piece of actionable advice is actually one of our software engineers, uh, Jamie Hampton, is writing a blog series currently on on those home growing kits. Um, and doing reviews, starting with a Hamama system, um, which is one of the one of the, the systems on on the market currently. So you can go to to our blog um, on Medium and check it out, and uh, and then see see if any of those systems might work for you. That is great. We actually had earlier, um, actually last year in September, episode seventy two called "Grow Your Own," where we had. Um, Jenny Farah and her Sprouts IO micro garden sure. thing, which she developed in uh, <laughs> MIT at the Media Lab up there. It's really fascinating. If you go to heritageradionetwork.org to the Tech Bytes page, we have a picture of it. It has its own grow lights and and you know it, computer system inside to monitor and everything. It's really really fascinating. Um, yeah. You don't need light. You don't need anything. You just need this thing, and it takes care of itself. Yeah, it's very cool. It's 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 really interesting to see all the self-contained home home growing systems because people are getting to act like commercial farmers almost um, from the from the plant biology side in their kitchens, which is very cool. I always think of indoor gardening and and indoor farms as being something that's completely 
encased inside like the post-apocalypse, you know, <laughs> society where we live in underground shopping malls and then all the farming is happening, you know, completely underground. Which maybe maybe Arrow Farms is like that out in Newark. We'll have to go and maybe take a field trip out there and walk through um, one of these indoor farms. <laughs> we are just out of time this week for this episode of Tech Bites. If you enjoyed this episode, go to our page on heritageradionetwork.org. We have 105 other ones racked up for you to listen to. If you want to take it with you, go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio. You can subscribe, download. You can leave us a great review. If you want to get in touch with us and tell us what you think about this episode or tell us what your favorite app is or let us know there's a topic of interesting tech that you'd like us to discuss on the show, we are completely interactive. You can email us techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. We are techbyteshrn on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're here every Thursday at 11 a.m. live. I'm Jennifer Liuzzi. I want to thank Allison Koff for joining us on episode 106 of Tech Bytes. And to take you out of the show and on to the rest of your day, we have Uptown Nico with his track, Nomad CPU. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.